from PRX. It's Live Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, it's Livewire with writer Timothy Egan, comedian Adam Posse, and activist Jeanette Ward Horton. With music from Pure Bathing Culture and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Elena Passarello, and thank you everybody for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We've got a fabulous show in store for you this week. Uh, the theme that we have picked is Leap of Faith, which relates to all of our guests in, in one way or another. Uh, we asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater to answer a question for us. We asked them, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? Okay. I was thinking about, well, maybe not the riskiest thing I've ever done, but probably the riskiest thing I did in the last three hours. <laughs> Uh, I was driving down uh, today to Portland from Seattle. Uh, I left myself plenty of time, I thought, but I forgot about one thing, which is if you drive from Seattle to Portland on I-5, you pass through a city called Tacoma, Washington. Why is everyone laughing? Because... (laughs) Isn't that true? (laughs) The section of I-5 that goes through Tacoma, Washington has been under continuous construction for 43 years. <laughs> I know this because I am 43. And it has never not been under construction oh, no. in my lifetime. I don't know if they're building a Stargate. <laughs> but it is always delayed because of construction. And so as I sort of got to Tacoma, things slowed down, which is pretty normal. Then what was not normal was things came to a complete stop. Like the car is parked on the freeway, you can get out and walk around. There are Girl Scouts selling cookies between the cars. We are now in a whole different situation. Oh, God. And I looked at the, you know, like the, the driving directions app that mm-hmm. I use, which happens to be Waze, and it informed me that there was an accident about five miles ahead. One and a half hours it added <gasps> to the uh, time it was going to take me to get here, which would have gotten me here about a half hour after the show starts. <laughs> and the weirdest part was that the Waze app was not telling me to get off the freeway. So I'm sitting here, like, as I inch closer to where the accident is, there's also one last exit before we go into this elevated section of freeway where there is no escaping. Okay. And I'm looking at the app, and I'm looking at the exit, and I'm looking at the app, and then I'm checking Twitter, but then I'm looking (laughs) at the exit, and I'm just like, I got to roll the dice. Something breaks inside me, and I look at the phone. I apologize to the app. I said, I'm sorry, dude. I can't do it. And I veered a hard right and got off the road. And now I'm driving on this small side road next to Interstate 5, past all the people that are still parked. And some of them are looking at me. They're making direct (laughs) eye contact. I'm like 30 feet from that road. And I'm thinking, what am I not understanding about this situation? Is there like a bridge out ahead? Am I going to Dukes of Hazard it to live wire? You're going to pause in the middle and Waylon Jennings is going to start talking. Well, them Duke boys got Boss Hogg nervouser than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs (laughs) or whatever. I'm like, how is this working? And I just keep driving past all the traffic and I get to where the accident is. And luckily it's nothing serious, it's a fender bender, it's in a very inconvenient place, which is why everything is is blocked up. And then I see the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, a sign that says, I-5 South, merge left. And I just casually re-enter the freeway like 100 feet south of the accident. Oh my God. I'm the only person on the freeway. (gasps) There's like nine lanes. And I look, I look at the Waze app and an hour disappears from the drive time. Like, I went through a wormhole, you guys. So, but I'll take it. Uh, how about you? What's the, what's the risky thing that you've done at some point in your life? Uh, all of the risky things I did, I did in between the ages of 20 and 22 and a half. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I haven't done anything really risky since. 
So when I was single, okay. I was cast in a play, and there was an out-of-town actor who was cast in it with me. It was my first professional what play. What city are you in at this point? Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. So this gentleman got cast in one of the lead roles. It was Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. We were doing it in a pet cemetery at the mansion of a former steel baron. So okay. setting the scene. So I just fell head over heels for this guy. I, had, I was so young. I had never... Uh, felt this besotted by a person and um, the play was almost over and the whole cast every Monday night we go to this piano bar get drunk and get up and sing with the piano guy and I had about 75 gin and tonics and I got up there and I sang Midnight Train to Georgia but drunkenly changed all the lyrics to basically telling him that I had a gigantic crush on him I, I was so drunk, I don't remember any of the lyrics, but I think the song went on for about 15 minutes. People were, like, throwing chairs. They were really into it. I had on, like, a little short dress. I was 22. And when it was over, he, he stood up at one point, and he got onto the stage, and I was like, what's going to happen? And he gave me a huge smooch. <gasps> wow. This worked? Yes, it worked. It totally worked. Yep. I went out with him for two years, and then I met David, and I dumped his ass. <laughs> this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking about leaps of faith this hour. we got somebody waiting just off stage who knows all about taking risks and leaps of faith. In fact, for his latest book, he walked over a 1,000 miles through Europe trying to figure out his own feelings about Christianity and even how religion fits into our modern world. The book is called A Pilgrimage to Eternity. Please welcome, from the New York Times, Pulitzer Prize winning Timothy Egan back to Livewire. Tim, welcome to the show. Great, great to be back with you. Tim, I'm wondering, was this a journey that you wanted to take and then you realized it should actually be a book? Or did you want to write this book and then realize that you were going to have to hike like a thousand miles to make that happen? Like, what's, so, which came so first? The, the book is, it's a walk from Canterbury to Rome, which was the oldest pilgrimage trail in Europe. Most people know about the Camino de Santiago, right. which is the one in Spain. Two million people a year go on that. This one is actually older, but it fell into the mists of time over, and it's only been revived by the EU in the last 40 years. So it's far less crowded, and it's absolutely spectacular. I mean, you leave Canterbury, you go to the cliffs of Dover, you, if you're really spiritual, you can walk across the English Channel. Uh, and, and then you get to Calais, you go through the Flanders fields, you go through the Champagne country, you start to ascend through the Alps, you crest at 8,000 feet on Great St. Bernard Pass, which is just spectacular. And then you're in Sound of Music country in these little alpine hamlets. You end up in Tuscany, the Lazio, and in Vatican Square. It's, it's a thousand mile journey that's just extraordinary. Now, you know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I shouldn't, you know, my publisher doesn't know this. I was looking for a way to get paid to walk through Europe. So, ah, okay. Yeah, so that was part of my motivation. And mostly, you know, in my books, I'm a historian, I do a lot of time traveling. And I felt um, I was going to write this book from the third person, you know, this, the history of Christianity and have that, that voice of remove. But as I got into it, I said, you know, I, I really have to be, to use this overused word, transparent with the audience. I've got to split a vein and tell people where I am in this thing. Uh, where were you when you set out to go on this journey, like in terms of your relationship with organized religion? So I'm part of what is the largest, fastest growing cohort in religion in the United States, which is a lapsed Catholic. Okay. <laughs> Second biggest cohort is uh, people who call the nuns, which means they're not agnostic or they're not religious, but they don't belong to any particular religion. Now, I define a lapsed Catholic as someone who um, doesn't believe in hell, but is pretty sure he's going there. <laughs> and so, so it's a little hard. <laughs> and, um, you know, I thought I've just, I was at a certain age in my life where I had not thought about spirituality for a long time. We're spiritual beings, and yet most of us suffer from malnutrition of the soul. And so I thought, you know, I've let my thinking go dormant. I might as well press this thing. I should really press the issue. And then the great Catholic comedian Stephen Colbert, <laughs> uh, I could hear his voice in the back of my head. He said, um, 
an, an agnostic is just an atheist without balls. <laughs> and so, so and, and I'm, I'm in fairly good shape, and I just thought, you know, well, I still got this, you know, this energy, and I still got this curiosity, and this desire to press this thing, and to, to look for miracles, and look for faith, and look at what this thing's all about. And you're walking through these, you know, every place you land, there was some miracle. I mean, Joan of Arc slept here where I'm sleeping. Um, you know, there's bodies all over the place, body parts, they call them relics you know, which are saints who've done saintly things and have lived through it all. So every place is someplace extraordinary, someplace magical. And also when you go on a pilgrimage like this, there's tons of drama. You don't know what to expect on any given day. I mean, a French dog can come after you and French dogs have an attitude. I yeah. mean, they, and you don't even know what they're saying. No, right. I mean. They bark with an accent. Yeah, it's super um, confusing. And so I, we got chased by dogs. I got, I got lost a million times. Um, so many things happened. And it was just wonderful adventure. Um, you talk about the decline of particularly Christianity in Europe. Like some people are saying, maybe Christianity won't even exist or Catholicism won't even exist in 50 years in parts of Europe. Were you seeing the evidence of that as you're on this journey, that just like the decline of this organized religion? So this is one of my motivations initially was to find God in Europe before God is gone. Because this was the theological cradle of the, of the most popular religion in the world. 2.3 billion people are Christians, one in three. But it's absolutely dying in Europe. They say in 50 years, Christianity will disappear in, the, in Great Britain. And France, 97% are nominally Catholic, but only 2% go to Mass on a regular basis. So you go to these spectacular places, these extraordinary cathedrals. I was in a scriptorium where monks used to labor all day with a little candle, you know, and their half gloves trying to write a full page of an illuminated manuscript. And you realize how important this was to all of civilization, but it's just a fossil. And it's just empty. The growth in Christianity is in Africa. And in 20 years, there'll be more Catholics in Africa than all of Europe. Wow. But I guess the, the question many people would have was like, is it such a bad thing that Catholicism is going away, considering the damage that it's done right. on multiple levels across continents and to all kinds of people? So you'll see as you go through this journey with me, I, I start pretty downbeat and I go through the history. I mean, it's a struggling spiritual startup. And in 50, you know. Just looking what? for an angel investor. Right, right. I mean, just, I mean, no. It, no a VC and JC. Exactly. Good line. I mean, put that in the second right, edition right, of the book. Right. That's a freebie, Tim. And, and, you know, at the time of Christ, the Messiah racket was a big deal. There were a lot of phony messiahs floating around. So 50 years after the death of Christ, there's still only 2,000 Christians in all of the Roman Empire, which is 50 million people. Now, as I said, it's 2.3 billion. How did this struggling spiritual startup get to be the world's largest religion? Well, it went through this phase where it got co-opted by the Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. They made it the state religion, which really was their original sin, because soon they were persecuting anybody and killing all the old gods, anyone who did not belong. Mm -hmm. And you wonder, how can this... Religion in the name of the so-called Prince of Peace brought so much bloodbath, and you know, not to say, mention the Crusades and heresy and all of that. And I, it's like, my God, I, I, has Christianity been a force for good in anything? And you think, and when you look at that, but then you see little things along the way, little things, little examples of people trying to live by the original words of the gospel, and then also you look at mysticism, which is a hard thing to erase. Now, wait a second, Tim. I want to I just hit pause because we need to take a quick break. But when we come back, this is what I really want to talk to you about because you are a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who, if I read the book right, is pretty sure that a corpse winked at you and you have pictures on your cell phone to prove it. I That's get in, correct. I want to get into this in a moment. This is Livewire from PRX. Though. We're talking to Timothy Egan. His latest book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity. We'll be back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. Livewire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why Livewire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection. And I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff. And I can testify. 
They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it. But uh, the folks at Foley sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, It's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon this week. Our theme is Leap of Faith. We are talking to Timothy Egan. His latest book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity. Um, so let's talk, uh, Tim, about the, the kind of miracle that you may have observed yourself on this journey. What was the name of, of this woman who's, I don't want to say claim to fame, that sounds dismissive, but she was known for, for dying, but her body never decomposed. Just to give you a little context, um, 80% of Americans believe in miracles. Now, I'm a skeptic by profession. So I went into this a, a real skeptic. I was not the 80%. I was in the minority that thinks, you know, miracles are more, mostly charlatan acts. You know, as Christopher Hitchens says in his book, it's just, there was just cheap, you know, acts of magician's acts to try to get the rubes into the faith. And then um, I got into Italy, which is the most glorious part of the Via Francigena, the trail I followed. It's the last 500 miles, and every step is infused with some kind of mysticism. Now, most of you, I imagine, have been in Italy, and you know if you go into an average-sized church and go up to the altar, you'll see a body in there. Underneath the altar, usually, it's preserved. Now, those bodies are called incorruptibles, and the Catholic Church recognizes them through a forensic process they've gone through as bodies that did not decompose. So you have these... You know, I've done that with gin. Right. This, I'm going to look like this in a thousand years. Well, and, and you look so good still. You know? Well, thank you. Yeah. So I, I go into this, the second biggest Duomo in the world after only the one in Florence. Oh, excuse me, the third biggest after the one in St. Peter in Florence. It's in the little town of Montefiascone, about 80 miles from Rome. And it's a dark and stormy night. And I'm told I've got to go in and see the incorruptible body of San Lucia Filippini who lies underneath a crypt there. And there's, I didn't even look at the Duomo. I went right down into the crypt, and I, I sort of creep forward. I see her. She's like, you know, 15 feet away, and she's lying on her back. And I get, I'm alone. I'm the only person in there. I take a bunch of pictures. I'm just sort of looking at the skin and trying to figure out what the trick is. And then the eyes open slowly and then all the way. And I just about, I mean, I just, I was just totally startled. And I stood there all alone and looked at it. I took a bunch of pictures of it. And then the eyes closed. And um, I I don't know how to explain it. I hadn't had a drink. Um, It was late in the day. She's one of the incorruptibles. She was just known for being incredibly good. She started um, girls' schools. She was an early feminist. And her saintliness was just that she was just known for being an amazing person. And, and when she died, her body didn't compose. Now, I thought there was some, so I sent a note to the archbishop later, you know, what embalming trick is this to make the <laughs> eyes open? Um, here's what I'll say about this. There's a line from Augustine. I read a lot of Augustine while I was doing this. And I also read Christopher Hitchens' book on atheism called God is Not Great. I basically wanted to let him argue on the Kindle. So yeah. I'd go back and forth. You know, every time I sort of got in a little bit, I'd listen to Christopher Hitchens, you know, that religion is all caca, you know. So there's a great line from Augustine that um, miracles are not contrary to nature. They're only contrary to what we know about nature. And that made a lot of sense to me. And um, there's, I went and looked at this. There's some of the 80 miracles that have been documented at Lourdes by medical authorities, the British magazine Lancet did a complete study of them. They call them medically inexplicable. A lot of them are, you know, showmanship. But there's an inexplicable part of it. So, I, you know, I'm not going to dismiss that. How do you square that then with the... A lot of us are really trying to argue for a more fact-based world right. in our current 
right. climate. I mean, part of, I know that part of your, I, you could say, disillusionment at the beginning of this book had to do with the 2016 election and the way that we seem to have moved into a post-factual world. How do you square what seems like a growing openness on your part to things that can't be explained with the fact that we have a lot of people in this world who are not believing facts enough? Right. Well, there are two different things. One is mysticism itself. And I spend a lot of time um, where Joan of Arc bedded down in the midst of her campaign. She was a teenage mystic. They, they never really understood her because she had a power, an aura. I mean, she was just this illiterate peasant teenage girl who basically kicked the English out of France. And also, and again, a feminist who men did not understand, so they had to kill her. Mm -hmm. um, now, to get to your question, that's mysticism, which I'll put in another realm. The fact-based stuff, here's the great irony of the Catholic Church right now. You have a pope, Pope Francis, who when he came to the United States Congress, he argued for fact-based climate change understanding. Now, here's a church that used to, yes. And he welcomes Stephen Hawking and the, all these physicists into the Vatican to talk about science. He says science just makes him believe in God even more. So here's a church that used to roast people at the stake for saying things that every third grader knows to be true today. And now they have a pope who's leading the cause for having a fact-based understanding of what's happening to our earth. And yet, uh, I know that you had family members who were abused within the Catholic Church. And part of the launch point of this book is that you were going to go and try to get audience with the Pope to more or less see if you could forgive the Catholic Church. I mean, that's a very intense journey to be on. Yeah, I mean, part of it, Pope Francis was the Wizard of Oz. And my journey was to be whether I could see the Wizard of Oz and whether I could forgive the Wizard of Oz. Because the clerical abuse scandal, I, I'm one of seven kids. And one of my siblings was affected by this abuse scandal, which is the, it's, I think it's the biggest scandal facing the church since the Reformation of 500 years ago, which mm -hmm. broke the church up. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther, they had this you know, indulgence thing where you would basically pay to get into heaven. Mm -hmm. And the, now they're facing this existential crisis. And so part of my journey was when I get to Oz, can I forgive the Pope? Can I have an audience with the Pope? So part of my thing is to try to get to see him and see if I can, if I can forgive him. For people who might be hearing this either here at the Alberta Rose or on the radio who are just sort of like, why should I care about organized religion? Or, or maybe the question is, what does something like this provide in your life, mm -hmm. Tim Egan? Like, what's the value of this? Yeah, I, I would say two things. One is on an intellectual basis. One is a spiritual thing. The intellectual thing is it, it's impossible to understand the world today if you don't understand religion. And I learned so much that I had forgotten or didn't know at all, and it opened my eyes to a lot of things, both good and bad. But it's important if you're, if you're a literate, sentient, thinking human being to understand religion. The other thing is I would say, you know, it, it just, to me it felt really good just to activate my long dormant spiritual side. You know, we have other dimensions, and I let those things go dormant. And you know, from like an outsider perspective, so much of our tourism, our travel, our, ch our physical challenges are, are wound up in things that people have built because of religion, right? How Absolutely. many times are you in a town and they're like, you got to go see the church? And then you go and you try really hard to quickly learn the history of who's buried there. And the place where it's built has seen these amazing environmental changes over the course. Or it's an amazing walk from one place to another place. And your book does this wonderful stitching of history and appreciation of beautiful things to enjoy while going on this spiritual journey. You learn so much and it's this, this amazing through line of these experiences that we all have when we just kind of want to go outside and see something beautiful, you know? Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that, but I, pilgrimage is natural to us. And there's a reason why something like 200 million people a year worldwide go on a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. The physical journey is, becomes the interior journey. And, you know, when you go on the Via Francigena, it just helps that everything is a prompt to something else. So even when you start in Canterbury, here's where um, Thomas Beckett got his skull cracked by two knights. It's, it's an 850-year-old crime scene and, like, the third most visited place in all of England. 
Um, Canterbury's tale came from going, making a journey to the place where Beckett got a skull crack. And, and that changed literature, it right? It, made, it gave us the birth of literature. Tourism absolutely. made, like no. religious tourism made books be the way books are That's now. absolutely right. And we needed an English major, a teacher. Uh, That's <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Elena Passarello, everyone. And by the way, Timothy Egan, his book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. Uh, Tim, here on Livewire, we like to try to get to know our guests in a, in a very real way. I, I think having read the book, I've learned a lot about you that I didn't know. But for the radio listeners, we want to still try to really get to the core of, of Tim Egan. And to that end, here on stage, we have this actual physical jar. This has the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this the jar of truth. Oh, my God. Is this a absolute truth? Well, uh, you'd be surprised. Here's, here's how this works. We're going to have you draw a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarella will read it. We'd like your honest answer. Now, usually the questions are like, how many unread emails is too many unread emails? <laughs> or something really important like that. This week, though, because of the topic of your book, these are all questions about faith and belief and the afterlife. If, if, there's, if this has ever really been the jar of truth, it's this week. Okay. I feel like sanctified. Yeah. Okay. So the stakes are pretty high here, Tim. Don't mess this up. I know. I know. All right. So go ahead and please uh, grab a question out of the jar of truth. Hand it okay. to Elena Passarello. Okay. Timothy Egan, which is a bigger act of faith in friendship? Letting your friend watch your pet or letting your friend drive your car? <laughs> That's really easy. You can do better than this. It's watch the pet. Uh, That's a bigger yeah, act of faith. Right, right. Yeah, right. What you just, it seems like you might disagree, Mr. Burbank. I'm sorry, Luke. This is my my this is dog was not $27,000. <laughs> I'm not still making payments on my dog. <laughs> yeah, but insurance covers your car, but doesn't cover your dog. Actually, I have dog insurance. <laughs> True story. And the reason is, I don't want to have to decide how much my dog's life is worth to me in the moment. So I pay some exorbitant fee every month. So if something, heaven forbid, happened, I would not have to put a value on her life because it would probably be shockingly low. Right. No. I'd yeah. probably be like $1,800. This is actually getting us to a kind of an absolute truth, I think. Exactly. All right. Please uh, select a question from the Jar of Truth, Tim Egan. Second truthy question. Is it okay to not say bless you the third consecutive time that someone sneezes? So that's a really tough one because I noticed, you know, in this secular world, you know, I don't say bless you. And if you say bless you, people are going to go like, huh, what's your religion? You know, really? I, I mean, I've always been in my sort of fair and balanced way. I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll just try not to have people. What do you mean by that? Do you so, say gesundheit? No, I just say, could you cover your mouth? Ah, yeah. <laughs> Redirect their anger at something else. So, so, but that was, that was in my younger and more vulnerable years, you know, when I was a smart ass. And now I've come around. People would give you weird looks if you didn't say, bless you. So now I just do it as an act of politeness, of course. But by the third, bless you, it's really, would you cover your mouth? Mm. Yeah. This is one of the things, actually, I'm sorry to bring this up, but I, I never understood the bless you thing. So why are you saying bless you when you sneeze? I think because you're getting close to death. Right? Yeah. It's because of the plague, right? If you're sneezing, then, then, then you need the blessing of the Lord to keep you from... To keep you home. Yeah, it's like the Zycam wow. of, like, 13th century, like the emergency yes. of... And we're open to, open to any of those products sponsoring the show, by the way, now that they're getting free shout-outs. Mm -hmm. Timothy Egan, you have tamed the jar of truth. Tim Egan's new book is A Pilgrimage to Eternity from Canterbury to Rome in Search of a Faith. Tim, thanks for being on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you by Alaska Airlines. Even for the proudest Pacific Northwesterner, Alaska Airlines offers a change of pace from scenic Portland greenery to a desert sunset or seaside cityscape. Alaska Airlines connects Portland flyers to over 130 destinations from Chicago and New York to Maui and Phoenix. Learn more about where they fly at alaskaair.com.
This is Livewire Radio from PRX here at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. My name is Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. This week we're talking about leaps of faith. We asked the audience here to tell us what's the biggest risk they've ever taken. And uh, they have answered that question. Elena, you've got some of those responses. What are you seeing? Yeah, here's one from Laura. Through an election party. Oh. Well, that's the show, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Uh, anything less dark well, being submitted by the audience? I don't know. What do you consider dark? Here's one from Claire. The biggest risk Claire has ever taken? Student dentist. <laughs> that's a risk a lot of people end up taking because... Uh, you know, dental care can be so expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, a lot of people go to the dental school. What's riskier, student dentist or student hairdresser? Uh, I speak from experience on both fronts, <laughs> student hairdresser. <laughs> uh, here's one from Marcy, Marcy's riskiest thing, got diagnosed with celiac and went to Italy. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, that's commitment. Yeah. To non-refundable airplane tickets. What else? Here's one from Carly. The biggest risk Carly's ever taken, hitting play on my Pump Up Jams playlist at work without confirming if my wireless headphones are paired to my laptop. That is a very 2020 oh, yeah. social faux pas. Oh, yeah. I did that on the airplane. I don't know a year ago, and it was the song that I always listen to upon takeoff, which is Rain King by the Counting Crows. I thought that it was playing through my AirPods. They decoupled for some reason. The entire cabin heard the soulful sounds of Adam Duritz. I have never wanted a plane to crash more. So I didn't have to have these people know that that's what I listen to on takeoff. What's the connection between... I don't know, Elena. It's deeply humiliating. Wow. Wow. Well, you took a real risk admitting that to all of us. Well, so my therapist says I'm supposed to do, so oh, I'm working work. it out here on the air. Um, this is Livewire Radio coming to you from... Beautiful Portland, Oregon. Of course, Portland, Oregon, full of beautiful, interesting people. And we like to meet some of those people each week. It's a segment that we call New Fascinating Friend. Let's do that right now by welcoming Jeanette Ward-Horton to Livewire. Hi, Jeanette. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So uh, if I uh, read your biographical information right, uh, you worked in corporate America for a while. You did acquisitions for Coca-Cola. That may have been fascinating, but that is not why we have you here on this episode of the show. Uh, We wanted to talk to you because these days you're the co-founder of a project called New Leaf. What does New Leaf do? So New Leaf is a nonprofit, and we help uh, build intergenerational wealth for people of color through the profits of the legal cannabis industry. (laughs) And we do that by supporting businesses to help uh, businesses owned by people of color and cannabis to help them launch, to help them scale. And we also do that um, by helping professionals of color uh, get high-earning positions within cannabis companies that, you know, are growing, one of the fastest-growing industries in in the U.S., uh, growing globally. Um, Yeah, so there's an opportunity, a great opportunity for both entrepreneurs and uh, people working in leadership positions in these companies to build intergenerational wealth, and we want to see that happen for black and brown people. How did you get interested in this kind of work coming from, you know, corporate America? Yeah, so I came to the cannabis industry because I thought it was a really incredible opportunity. Um, Would you say it was a leaf of faith? Oh, wow. (laughs) Elena, you're hosting the rest of the show. (laughs) I mean, in all seriousness, though, I mean, that's quite a jump. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the cannabis industry is is still developing. There's still a lot of stigma around it. Yep. You're a woman of color. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is quite a, that was quite a transition, I would imagine. All of that's true. That's right. Yeah. 
I did it because I saw an opportunity and uh, saw a door open and ran through it. But then I got there and I said, oh, wait, this, this matters. I wanted to say it won't let me go because it won't. Like, this is super important. And I think that worked out uh, ultimately for me. But um, I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me when I got there. And it seemed ironic um, that an industry through the arrests of people of color um, help create prisons, create um, other things around the incarceration of black and brown people. And then this drug becomes legal and is now creating um, wealth for people then who, who don't look like us. Right. Um, the idea being that people of color have been disproportionately prosecuted with longer sentences and more enforcement around, right. for instance, cannabis and marijuana, and then the thing goes legit and it's a bunch of white people getting right. rich off it. Right, so cannabis took wealth from communities of color and now the industry really needs to, to invest that back because these tax dollars are benefiting our communities, your communities, looking at the audience. Yeah. Looking at any state that's legalized cannabis, that money needs to come back to the communities that were harmed through the war on drugs. And in some places, it's legislated, right? Like Chicago, but that's not happening in Portland? or So it's happening in Portland. So Illinois, they have um, a pretty progressive social equity bill that helps reinvest tax dollars into building that intergenerational wealth I was talking about, building entrepreneurs um, and other investments into communities of color uh, broadly. Um, so it's a, it's a good bill. They have that. In the state of Oregon, we don't have anything, but in the city of Portland, we do. And you worked on that, right? That's right. How does that work? It's like a percentage of the money that's generated by, by rule has to be reinvested in communities of color? So um, everything you said is true except for percentage. There is a pool of money available for investments into various things, and one of those things um, is communities of color. Uh, investments into uh, what New Leaf does, so investments into businesses uh, owned by people of color, investment into professional development uh, for people of color in cannabis, but then also uh, investments into schools, investments into job development and workforce development programs, investments into programs that help people transition from prison to um, gainful employment. It's a really good way to say, let's rebuild the communities that were harmed. In the city of Portland, the problem is we haven't allocated a percentage. So you said a percentage. Um, we've said that the money will go to reinvesting in these communities, but not how much. So we're investing a really little amount. Um, so I'm happy for our start, but I want to make sure we continue working on, on it and make sure that we're doing the right thing. You, in your own life, were basically hassled by the police because of cannabis. Yes. So I was, I was arrested and it really is traumatic. It is. The experience is. But forget that. Like that's, that's just the start of it. Um, I was arrested. I got strip searched. I spent a night in jail. Yada, yada. Um, yada, yada. <laughs> but it's a yada, I suppose, because I know a lot of people who have yada. In my community, I know a lot sure. of people who, been through for it. whom this story is not special. But it's the, um, the after effects of that. So for me, I've had my record expunged, and I haven't had to experience a lot of after effects. I was able to end up in corporate America in, um, in a really great job. But that's not the story for most people and most families. And that's the important part of this. And um, you know, for my own family, that's my arrest, but that's not telling the story of the arrest of my father and then how that impacts our family. And that's, that's the piece. That's where we have to say this was more than just a yada yada jail. This was intergenerational impact to your ability to sustain your family. And then you see this play out in communities and the opportunity that people have um, coming from certain communities or living in certain communities. So I keep circling back to the intergenerational wealth and that impact and how we owe it, we owe it through this cannabis tax to, to pay that back. And that's what New Leaf does. That's what we advocate for. And that's what you see in states like Illinois. This is happening um, across other, other states because th there's a realization that we can do this, we can right this wrong, and we have this opportunity. What uh, can people do, uh, aside from enjoying the many varieties of cannabis now available in, in many states, uh, aside from that, what can people do to help try to push this forward? You know, you all vote, right? So you can um, really advocate for this and uh, show support for uh, those folks um, in our government who should be held accountable to this. 
our city commissioners being an example. Um, it really is a great thing that we have. You know, I started kind of with the negative. We aren't giving enough money to the cause, and we're not. But it's a great thing that we've got to start. And we do have that start in the city of Portland. And so the city did that. You did that. The voters did that. And I, I did help write the language. You asked me about that. So you vote. This is what you can do. You can hold your elected officials accountable. Well, we wish you luck with this. I feel like it is a product that sells itself. So if we can make sure the money is going to the right places, it seems like it should be a good virtuous cycle. Uh, Jeanette Ward Horton from New Leaf. Thanks for being our new fascinating friend. All right, we've got to take a quick break. This is Livewire from PRX. Don't go anywhere. Special thanks this episode to Michael Spicer and Mary Hirsch of Portland, Oregon. Michael and Mary are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support the show with a donation each month. We are so thankful for that support because without it, we would not be able to do this thing week in and week out. So a huge thanks to Michael and Mary for supporting Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Our comedian this hour won the 2019 Portland's Funniest Person Contest. But he said more importantly, for the purposes of this introduction, he also came in third in the same competition in 2016. Apparently he is getting funnier every year. He's appeared on Portlandia. He's performed at festivals like Bridgetown. Please welcome the reigning funniest person in Portland, Adam Posse to Livewire. Hello. At an interesting year last year, I found out I need to lose 100 pounds to skydive. At an airfield, someone didn't just yell it on the street. That'd be rude. That'd be, be rude, but impressive. Some guy rolled up like, hey, yo, big man! You're too heavy to skydive. But if you wanted to, 100 pounds. It's a good eye, right? That man's got some state fair money in his future, for sure. I went to watch a friend do it, so I got that info, and ever since that day, I've been doing my best to not lose 100 pounds. Because the instructor scared me. The equipment's what said I need to lose that much weight. What the instructor said to me verbatim is, but you seem cool. <laughs> you ever been so cool it made someone want to ignore the label on a parachute? I have once. Because he then told me that if I lose 50, he'd be willing to let me slide. And I said, no, you'd actually be willing to let me plummet, because that's what would happen. That's reckless if you consider that when you drop a quarter off the Empire State Building, that could split a human body clean in half. So what do you think happens to our sweet planet Earth if I go careening into it from an airplane? This all happened in Texas, by the way. Yeah, that lets you know that everything is bigger there. Even the margin for error. I do love Texas because when I visit, it makes me feel more in touch with and more proud of my Mexican heritage than I do when I'm anywhere else I've been in my entire life, which is beautiful, but weird because I'm Samoan. I'm in a very happy relationship with my girlfriend. We've only ever had one fight the whole time we've been together. That fight was about Girl Scout cookies. And it's not that one of us stole the other's cookies, because that'd be a breakup, not a fight. She'd be gone. <laughs> no, I was buying her some. And I asked, how many boxes of Samoas can I get you? Yeah. And she replied, zero, I don't like the Samoas Girl Scout cookies, which, yeah, wrong, obviously. That's an incorrect opinion that she has. Even more so, it's offensive to me, her Samoan boyfriend. What's going on over there? 
And what's your issue with the cookies? The chocolate, the coconut, the caramel? Is any one of those not a delicacy? No, they are not. What's wrong with your mouth? You got the dessert version of that cilantro disease? Is that what's going on right now? Even if the Samoas weren't delicious, which they clearly are, even if they weren't, the bigger issue is media representation. We don't have a lot. It's pretty much just the rock and these cookies once a year. <laughs> Next closest thing to a famous Samoan is Bruno Mars. That's a Filipino Michael Jackson impersonator. <laughs> Cares how they taste. You can't just eat a couple to back me up because I'd do it for you. Yeah, if they made a sucky Norwegian cookie, I'd choke my way through two or three of those. <laughs> Here's how worthless shortbread cookies are. You can make one by licking the good stuff off of any other Girl Scout cookie. <laughs> Except for Thin Mints, which are second best Girl Scout cookie. Unless, of course, you prefer tag-alongs, in which case you can leave. The exits are marked. It's not that they taste bad. It's just the tag-along is a peanut butter Twix that you waited a whole year to eat for some reason. <laughs> tag-along fans, we can go to a gas station right now and I will blow your minds. <laughs> the Girl Scout cookie hierarchy is as follows. Second place, Thin Mints, and in first, the genetically superior Samoan ones. <laughs> that might not have been about cookies. So I buy my girl some Thin Mints. I bring them home to her. She doesn't put them in the freezer. Oh, you think it's bad? I sleep next to that monster. <laughs> With my eyes closed and my guard down, because I thought I had the woman of my dreams, turns out I'm just sharing a blanket with a room temperature mouthed cookie bigot the entire time. <laughs> you guys have been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. My name is Adam Possum. Adam Posse. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank. Our theme this week, Leap of Faith. Our musical guests this hour have toured with Death Cab for Cutie and The Shins, just to name a couple of bands. Their latest album, Night Pass, is full of songs that are both instantly identifiable yet utterly personal to the band, who've been playing together since freshman orientation at the New Jersey College they both attended. These days, they're based right here in Portland, Oregon. Please welcome Pure Bathing Culture back to Livewire. Yeah. 
Pure Bathing Culture, right here on Livewire. Their latest album, Night Pass, is available now. That is going to do it for our show this week. Huge thanks to our guests, Timothy Egan, Adam Posse, Jeanette Ward-Horton, and Pure Bathing Culture. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Roger Meyer of Portland, Oregon, and Dave Cosgrove, also of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week.